Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. Yes, it is. And my name's Marshall. It's a good day. It is a good day. We both woke up in these sort of like funky music moods. Yeah. The sun's not shining, but it is on the inside. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I got to the office a little early this morning and uh, had my music blaring and was, I was dancing. <laughs> Don't tell anyone <laughs> that you just ruined your chances of ordination. <laughs> I, know. I have no future. At in least Baptist ordination. <laughs> Gonna have to go non-denom or something. I don't know. Right. We'll have to call up Chad <laughs> and see if there's anything that the Pentecostal church can do for yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. No. It's a good morning. Dance. The dancing Baptist. <laughs> the dancing. Ba- you know what? I'm like. I might hold on to that. That might be. Fun. You know, all these people that we talk about end up with these names, like these. Things that characterize them, and you mm. get like so. Maybe Marshall the Great is not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but maybe Marshall the Dancing Baptist. I could take that. I could go with that. Yeah, yeah. that could be a good. What's that called? An epitaph. Yeah. yeah. You, you know where I'm from? Back home, mm, down south. You you do get some of that. Yeah. That soulful Baptist. Mm. Yeah. I can get down but, with that. But generally not the sort of Southern Baptist like that wouldn't be. It'd be more like the mm-hmm. National Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. Don't dance or chew or go with girls who do. There's like a million. Ver- I just I just spit out variations of that that phrase. That's not even what it is. <laughs> but don't play cards or chew or go with girls who do. Anyways, sorry. Yeah. Let's get to church history. Let's let's do some church history. We're a ways off from, from Baptists who da- don't dance. So we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. In, in Although, do you think the, the monks danced i don't know that's a that's a really good question probably not i would guess no yeah i would guess that there's a level of that sort of stoicism in their piety Mm -hmm. that kept things pretty chill Mm. pretty chanty pretty chanty (laughs) yeah yeah that's fair that's fair yeah all right so where are we at in history we are essentially at the year 1000 that is pretty well where we left off in our in our last episode. Which is crazy because it is April the 14th as we record this. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of at the halfway point. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. Yes, but no. We're chronologically. Chronologically. We are at the halfway point. Yeah. yeah. The, the reality is that there is a wealth of information, mm-hmm. particularly from the, the Reformation onwards. So that's going to eat up a lot more of our time. And to be honest, like we're, for example, one of the most commonly circulated church history textbooks by a guy named Justo Gonzalez is two volumes. They're essentially the same size. Right. One is everything before the Reformation and the other one is Reformation onwards. Yeah, that, that's a pretty common division of history yeah. amongst, especially like this this set that I'm using here. Uh, from Zondervan, it's a two-volume set. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um. I yeah. Husto. It's the. It's a common thing. Yeah. To to divide it there just because, and I wonder even how much longer that can last because mm-hmm. one of the issues is not just the amount of this information that we have post Reformation, but also the church starts splitting in ways that we're going to see. I think first fruits of sure. today. Yeah. Uh, which means there's just 
more to talk about. There's more area to cover. Yeah, there's more there's more plot lines to cover, yeah. essentially, if we're, we're going to treat it as a story. Um, yeah, it, things definitely branch out, and we're going to get a little bit of that today, um, but there's certainly a lot more of that down the road. So, yeah, so we're going to cover the years 1,000, and we're going to get almost to 1,100. There's one big thing that happens towards the end of the 11th century that... A great thing. A great thing. Great big. A great big thing uh, that we're not going to get to, but there's another great oh. big thing that we are going to okay. get to today. Yeah. I misread you. I was dropping hints at the... <laughs> rhymes with the Brusades. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some things that were going on in this in the world around this time. I have a list. Do you have, do you have anything? No, go for it. Okay. Uh, right around the year 1000 or 1001, a guy named Leif Erikson... Mm. establishes at least one settlement, settlement, probably uh, a, a network of settlements in North America. Um, they've discovered one in, in Newfoundland at a place called Lanso Meadows. Um, but there are likely a lot more. They, they figured that was probably a forward operating base. They, they called the land they discovered Vinland because there were grapes. And uh, there ain't no grapes in, in Newfoundland or, or not, not the kind that you can make wine with. So they figured they must have gone further south than that. Mm-hmm. Or they were just lying, which you know what actually, but the Vikings totally lied about. Yeah, I was going to say Leif, Leif Erikson sounds like a very English name, but it's not. Leif Erikson? No, no, he's well, he's from Iceland, I believe. Right. But the weird thing, so like with the so Vi- so that is a Viking, I think needs to be explained. Oh, the sure. son of Eric the Red. Yeah, yeah. Who was a vicious mm. kind of a guy? Oh yeah. And Leif Erikson is particularly interesting. Because as we were talking about the Christianization of the Vikings, mm. Leif Erikson is a Viking who, in all of his statues, wears a cross around his neck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Devout Christian, yeah, but yet still a Viking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't make him change his job. Because being a Viking wasn't... It's not ethnic. It, it's actually... It's your, it's your job title. Right. Right? It's, right. it's being like... It's, it's like seasonal work, being a pirate, essentially, is what mm-hmm. it is. Um... But yeah, so they found some kind of way to <laughs> justify in their minds <laughs> what they were doing with their new faith. I don't know how. Uh, but anyways, yeah, so interesting thing. That hold, hold on. Isn't there, there's a veggie tale on this. Lyle the Friendly Viking? Yeah, sounds right. Lyle the Friendly Viking, yeah. Where they do sort of like, uh, oh yeah, because... Instead of raiding, mm-hmm. he returns the stuff that gets stolen, <laughs> and he makes potholders for everyone. Okay, <laughs> as a way, it, it's the it's the little kid. Uh, what's the junior? Junior asparagus. Yeah, and he makes potholders for everyone as a sort of recompense. And then all the Vikings are like, "What are you doing? This is the opposite of Vikingness." And he's like, "No, let's. This is better." And they're all like. Oh yeah, you're right. God wants us to yeah. be nice to people. I, it's not ex- it's not really true to how things went. <laughs> no, no, not quite. <laughs> There's a gap between Leif Erikson and Junior Asparagus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, and, and whatever. This the Scandinavians in general. Speaking of Scandinavians, were big, big players at this time. This time period in history. Oh, yeah. In the early 1000s. We don't talk about it very often in people's concept of history, but there's essentially a North Atlantic empire at this point that mm-hmm. exists. Um, Knut the Great um, of Denmark controlled Denmark, Norway, essentially all of England, parts of Scotland. Like he had a, 
a, this massive territory, this North Atlantic empire, um, and unified these nations. Now it doesn't last forever. Um, there's, there's some other folks that end up, uh, making the journey across the channel. Uh, in 1066, we have William the Conqueror who, uh, successfully invades Britain. Hastings. Yeah. The battle of Hastings, uh, ends the Anglo-Saxon era, mm-hmm. um, and begins kind of the Norman era. Um, we also have Macbeth, yes, that one, um, ruling in Scotland at this time. 1040 becomes king, mm-hmm. rules for a while. Double, uh, double toil and bubble, bubble toil and trouble. Yeah, yeah. I don't witches know if that... Brew and cauldron bubble. I don't know if there are actually witches involved in his whole story, but... Shakespeare said there were. So, yeah, just go with that. I mean, and we're, we live in Stratford, so we... We live in Stratford, so everyone knows... We must not Stratford question. ...your Shakespearean references. <laughs> because in Stratford, what we do... Is just sit around and talk Shakespeare. That's true. Yeah, we do. <laughs> There's nothing else. <laughs> That's not true. Um, yeah, Sh- Shakespeare and Bieber. Shakespeare and Bieber. That's what we're. Known That's for. what we do. That's what we're known for. You want to? You want a party? Come to Stratford. Yeah, we've got William Shakespeare and Justin Bieber. Apparently, used to like in buckets build and repair train engines here. That was like a thing that happened back in the day that Stratford was known but for. But while they were repairing train engines, <laughs> they were listening to Shakespeare <laughs> and Justin Bieber. <laughs> back in the 30s. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So don't, don't doubt me. I looked it up. So, I looked it up on the internet. So lots of lots of significant <laughs> <laughs> lots of significant events happening. Um, but the most significant event in church history of this century. Um, was the Great Schism. What's a schism? It's a division. Yeah. Separation. Particularly used for churches. Yeah. Right? So when a church splits over the color of the carpet, mm-hmm. that's a schism. Yeah. When when I was kind of doing my research for the schism, the, the analogy that, that came to my mind is like, like it's like a divorce. Yeah. It's, it's pretty nasty. There's yeah. there's some parallels, right? Like this this breakup... Uh, it was a long time coming. There's lots of factors at play. Whose mm-hmm. fault it was really depends on where you land. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the wrongs done to one another are legitimate, but totally overblown. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and then these differences of opinions are characterized as insurmountable flaws that just can't be can't be overcome, can't be dealt with, and they split. So it's, it's very much... Like a divorce. <laughs> and both of them control their history very well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get very different, very different uh, interpretations of the same events yeah. from the two different sides. And sorry if it sounds like I'm making light of divorce, but I'm a child of multiple ones. So I feel like I, I'm allowed. <laughs> I'm allowed. <laughs> I'll play that card. Um, anyways, the thing is, ultimately, both. The Roman Catholic and Orthodox Church would ultimately claim that they're the only true church. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying we were just before, it's in the name. Right. Right? <laughs> One is the Eastern Orthodox Church. We are, as you said, the true church. Mm-hmm. If you do not believe along with us, you are unorthodox. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, Catholic, means the church universal. Mm-hmm. Do you really want to be outside of the universal church? <laughs> yeah. We yeah. we still see some of this, right? Oh, uh yeah. there's there's so where I'm from there's 
pretty good sized denomination called the Church of Christ. Right. You don't want to be outside of that. <laughs> uh, I've also heard of the Church of God in Christ. Mm. Right. That's yeah. that's something you don't want to be outside of. Those mm. are some pretty big claims. <laughs> right. um, but these two these two take that sort of in, even in what they will label themselves. We're right. Oh yeah. yeah. We're right and you're wrong. Yeah. 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 It it just infers that like anything outside of their organization is not the church. Yeah. And and while there might have been some overtures in recent years, things said nice nice words by certain popes or certain patriarchs, that is essentially still their position to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that is, is it, their doctrinal theological statement. We are not Christians. I'm gonna that. I'm gonna go on a limb <laughs> because we haven't done the touch up sort of research as a company. I think it's Pius the Ninth. Who just comes in and says, "If you're not a part of the Church Catholic, mm. you're not a Christian." I think I think you're right. Yeah, we'll get. Yeah, I, I think that's. I but think that's, that's like six hundred years down the road. Yeah, seven hundred years down the road. But I mean, hey, he speaks with Peter's authority, so it must be true. Um, so in any case, I mean, as Protestants, uh, both groups consider us outside the fellowship of Christ and right. essentially non-believers. So maybe we can be the neutral judges in this one, and because <laughs> we and don't have a horse in the race. Yeah, and so. The Catholic Church, as you said, have in in current rhetoric universalized a little bit, mm-hmm. right? They they still have the official on the book stance, mm-hmm. but there has been no repeal, official repeal of that, mm-hmm. in order to say that is no longer the case, and now we are at a place where we accept everyone. Yeah, yeah. To be perfectly honest, that universalization isn't just for Protestants; it's also for other religions. Oh yeah. yeah. Right? It's it's a universalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the Orthodox Church still calls us a cult. Yeah. To this day. <laughs> like like not just sort of like cultish or cult like, mm. but when I was teaching in Ukraine and Russia at the seminaries there, one of the biggest obstacles they have in outreach is that the Ukrainian and Russian words for cult is what they're labeled. Yeah. Right? Um, Which is also true in Quebec. Yeah. It was true in France when I was an exchange student there as well. Yeah, in in regions that are are heavily dominated by Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches, um, pretty much every variety of Protestantism is considered a cult. Mm -hmm. Um, So there there are multiple factors that lead up to this schism, right? Um, And it's it's pretty well down the middle. at this point in history, they figured the Eastern Church might have had a, a bit more people, more more Christians amongst the Eastern Church. Okay, uh, but it's a pretty it's a pretty even split down down the middle. Um, and and many of the issues there there are theological issues, and we'll get into them. But a lot of them kind of come out of having different customs and traditions, mm-hmm. right? There there's different culture. Like the kind of the Greek culture versus Western European culture, right? Um, that you know varies. And both of, both of them are finding their, both of them are sort of, if you want to take the concept of adolescence mm. and that teenager finding themselves, mm-hmm. because this is post Rome, for just a little bit enough that these cultures are, if we don't have Rome dominating our culture. And telling us who we are, then we got to figure out who we are, mm. and and there's there's probably a bit of that self discovery mm. as a society 
that's going on that is deepening some of the cultural divisions between the two, Mm -hmm. not to mention influence, right? The Germanic influence coming in from the north for those in the Western church Mm -hmm. and uh, the Arabic communities coming in from the east there at the Eastern church. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's... Yeah, there's there's a bit of self discovery, mm-hmm. not just within the church, but within society as a whole. Yeah. that's going on in this post Roman world. Yeah, and in Rome was at this point, and for hundreds of years had been a a pale, pale shadow of its former oh, yeah. glory. Like like I remember when when Candace and I went to Rome, we did a um we did a walking tour, and he spoke about how they figured at its zenith there was between one and two million people who lived in Rome which is massive for in the ancient world. This is mm-hmm. in the, the, the Roman Empire era. And, and at one point, the population drops to like the tens of thousands, mm-hmm. right? And doesn't, doesn't get back to that same size until the 20th century. So, but Constantinople, on the other hand, is massive and booming and, and powerful. And so y- you, you also have a little bit of this kind of, this thing that, okay, maybe the Bishop of Rome has had you know, kind of has been first amongst equals for a long time. But, you know, who is who is this guy from that backwater, from that, you know, ruin of a city right. to tell us in glorious Constantinople what is right and what's not? Yeah, I don't think many people would would try to stretch the timeline of the Roman Empire into the time period we're in. The Byz- Byzantines did. But anyone who does stretch the Roman Empire into that has to acknowledge that it's in palliative care. Yeah, yeah. But in the East, though, they saw themselves still as the successors. They were the Romans. I, I would say the successors. Yeah. And the Byzantine Empire. Right, right. I wouldn't call it Rome. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fair enough. No, I know, yeah, because you're right, because Rome, Rome was, yeah, palliative care is probably a good, a good way to put it. Uh, life support, whatever you want to say. Um so ultimately like these divisions get overblown and, and these antagonists on both sides accuse each other of blasphemy and heresy. And, and some of these issues, so one of the ones we talked about was um, last week, the, the filioque clause, mm-hmm. right? That the, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. That was a big, that, that initially like flared up a couple hundred years before the great schism, but it was, it was never really resolved. And you had two different traditions in two different areas and they were very, you know, had a lot of contempt for one another for their, their take on that. We've already discussed in episodes back when to celebrate Easter or Christmas. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Those are, those are a thing, um, which, which still continue. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, so there's not a whole lot of, Eastern influence where I grew up. Mm-hmm. But when I moved to Toronto, it was really fascinating to see people celebrating Christmas with blue instead of red and green. Right. And to see them doing that in January. I have a really, I have a pressing question for you. Yeah. Because of your experience with evangelicals in Eastern Europe, in Russia and, and um, the Ukraine, do they celebrate Christmas and Easter? According with- to the Eastern Cat. To the Eastern calendar. Even though they're not part of the Orthodox Church. Cool. That was interesting. Yeah. All right. Sorry. (laughs) Hopefully hopefully our one listener found that interesting as well, because I I wondered about that. Um, Other things they fought about, leaven versus unleavened bread for communion. Oh, yeah. The Romans was unleavened. Right. Because that was Passover bread. 
the Eastern Church, no, leavened bread, because Christ rose, and it's symbolic of his rising. And they actually, they actually claim that those who ate the unleavened bread were Judaizers. Okay. Adopting Jewish traditions and importing them into the church—that was that was the Eastern perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we might have had a conversation. I don't know if we've had a podcast conversation. No, we this. haven't had a podcast conversation on this. About, so, yeah. when I when I first started pastoring in Toronto, mm. the church there is a Baptist church, historically German. Okay, and in the European tradition, because. It's pretty common now, leavened bread, mm-hmm. across the greater majority of Europe. Mm. Uh, so that's what they did. Um, I, I would say that my position is pretty firm, mm. but I also recognize that it's description and not prescription. That is to say, this is how the Bible is describing it, not saying it's sin if you don't do it this way. Right. Uh, but there is symbolism in the nature of the unleavened bread Mm. that does go back to a Jewish time, Mm -hmm. right? And the anticipation, but sin and yeast is a pretty strong symbolism. Sure. And purity of the unleavened bread is a pretty strong symbol. Now, Mm. especially when it's representative of Christ's body, right? Who was pure and and without sin, right? Right. Now, this is where sometimes people want to take biblical symbols and they want to say, well, once you use it here, that's what the Bible always means. It doesn't. That's not true because the kingdom of God is also described as leaven, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In the way that the gospel spreads throughout society mm-hmm. and raises society. There's there's your uh, post-millennial moment. Thanks. Uh and so, so that's not the case. It's not just the case of, well, every time leaven is talked about, it means sin. Mm-hmm. But in the context of the Passover meal and in the context of the life of Jesus and the life of purity, there is something of symbolism there that I think is worth regarding. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the description that they were celebrating Passover at the Lord's Supper would mean that they were having unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the description side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that there's significance in that enough to use unleavened bread. Sure. Now, the challenge is often then sent back to me. Well, if we're trying to do it exactly like they would, would we use an alcoholic wine? Is mm. it just to do everything the way that they were doing it? Right. Whether or not there is alcohol in the juice has no spiritual symbolism mm. there's there's nothing about the fermentation of the juice that is played out in the symbolism mm. i i think the i think the more accurate would be to say whether or not we had water or juice right right you could go you could go white versus red yeah i would say there's because it is meant to represent blood i would say there is something symbolic in the red mm. versus a white right um and so to that, I would say, no, it's, it's not about trying to recreate the moment as accurately as possible with every detail being the same. Mm. Uh, it, it's about maintaining the symbolism mm. in a way that's meaningful in worship. Mm. And, and so I would say, no, it doesn't need to be alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You can make a point for red mm. uh, and and unleavened bread. That's mm-hmm. just kind of my position. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I yeah. think I think with that sort of thing. I mean, my my take is like there are maybe ideals 
like I ideally unleavened bread, right? Sure. Um, however, because there's not a prescriptive thing, you know, in the in the new covenant context about whether or not the bread has yeast, it doesn't invalidate. And I know that you wouldn't say that either. No, it doesn't. It doesn't invalidate communion. The problem was. We can have these nuanced views, but the East and Western churches did not. Right. And, <laughs> and this is how nuanced my view is on this. Yeah. The point, I never went to the elders of that church and to the church itself and said, listen, we have a problem here. Mm. I went to them and said, hey, we're out of communion bread and we need to buy some new communion bread. And here's my thought on that. Mm. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where I would sit on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these guys have no room for nuance. No, none at all. Um. The other thing is, so celibacy amongst the priesthood in in the West had been common for some time, but was now strictly enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not necessary in the East. The Eastern Church, you would have certain priests choose celibacy, but many of them were married. I believe they still they still are are allowed to marry. Yeah, this. This is all about Paul saying it's better not to marry mm-hmm. because you can get more done for the church if you mm-hmm. don't have to be home at night. Yeah. Right? Uh, interestingly enough, these churches claim their authority not from Paul, mm-hmm. but from Peter, mm-hmm. who is the only disciple that we know for a fact was married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because early on, they meet at Peter's mother in law's house. <laughs> Right. And there's only one way to get a mother-in-law. Yeah. That comes as a package deal. Right. They try and to explain away that passage, though. <laughs> it's like how Jesus' uh, brothers and sisters are actually his cousins. Like, literally, right. I've heard that. Right, because Mary is still church. the virgin. Yes, ever virgin. Always right. was, always. Or, yeah. or they come with Joseph from a previous marriage. Right. Or yeah. Kind of a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is explained away. It's hard to explain away the concept of mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. <laughs> Yes. And I've often wondered how many times a young man given his life to the monastic order is sitting there copying the scripture right, word for word because that's what he's committed to do for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And he gets to that passage and he goes, wait, what? Hold. That can't be right. Yeah. I, it's funny. To where someone swoops in yeah. from outside and says, this don't worry about it just write it yeah don't think about it just write it it's it's interesting though i just this is a bit of an aside and i know we can't have too many of these but this whole idea of you know what paul does say you know hey if you are single and you're able to do that that's fine that's great like there might even be an advantage there's even an advantage to it Mm -hmm. in our modern context i think single pastors would really struggle to find a job i think they would and unfairly too Mm-hmm. And I, I know guys who are students, seminary, whatever, unmarried, and I think this is a concern for them. Mm-hmm. This is like, I'm not going to look as favorable to a search committee if I'm not already married, which is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I totally backwards, but um, just, I don't know, it's worth saying. I think people need to like reconsider being married doesn't necessarily make you a better pastor. Yeah, I think, I think we've put too much weight on relatability mm-hmm. and... That a, there are certain things you can counsel without having been in it, mm-hmm. sure to a degree. Yeah, there's addictions um, counselors who haven't been right. You don't you don't have heads. to right. Yeah. You don't have to be addicted in order to counsel addiction. Mm-hmm. 
you don't have to have been married or to have children in order to counsel in those things. Mm-hmm. But man, the light that it shines. Sure. Yeah, totally. Uh, and and I think I think that's a valuable thing that maybe has been made too given too great a value. Mm. And I think that's why those guys struggle in that. Yeah. Uh, but Lindsay and I often, when our kids, especially when our kids were really young, mm. and we would have a moment, we would say, is that how 20-year-old Lindsay would have parented that moment? Is that how 20-year-old Tim thought that parents should handle this moment? Yeah. And then we just laugh at our, we laugh at our 20-year-old selves and we're like, yeah, well, they didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the thick of that right now, so I'm just going to withhold any input. <laughs> it's, it's rough. When I'm pray, a parent. Pray for me. When I'm a parent, I'm, my kids aren't going to change our schedule at oh, all. Oh, man. Yeah. When I'm a parent, I'm going to teach my two-year-old how to listen. Right. Good luck. <laughs> all you got to do is... <laughs> yeah, all you got to do is just look them in the eye and hold it, their There's hand. a formula to yeah, it. No, and if you just do it this way, then it works. Not with my children, unfortunately. They, they, children are their own agents of free will. Yes. Oh, yes. And the sin nature runs strong. Okay, so <laughs> I love my children. Don't, don't think I don't, but uh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> one of the biggest issues... Biggest divisions, though. We are way... We are on rabbit trails, and it's... But all rabbit trails circle back. They do. We're we're circling back to ecclesiology, and ecclesiology is essentially just like your theology of the church, how the church is to be organized and operated, how it makes decisions, where the authority runs, et cetera, et cetera. And there's there's very different views in the East Mm -hmm. and West. In the East, the idea is that like every local church, so every kind of community... That, now, that community could be a small town. It could be a big city. Right. Would be led by a bishop mm-hmm. with elders, or they'd call them presbyters, underneath of them, deacons beneath them. And that group would partake of communion as a collective. That was the church. And the churches of different cities were connected and, in a sense, made up the church. Mm-hmm. But each each church kind of stood on its own. Right. Right? There was not not autonomy mm-hmm. in, in the sort of Baptist sense. Not quite, no. But there was independence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so each local bishop was, in a sense, in their minds, the successor of Peter. He, he had that authority, that quote-unquote apostolic authority for the local church. Right. Um, so theoretically, all bishops were equal. Although, you know, some did have more important functions, but it was a, a, a functional hierarchy rather than a hierarchy of, like, gr- like who is greater, right? So, which is different, obviously, than the Roman Church. The Roman Church takes a much more universal approach. There is one great Christian empire on earth led by a single ruler, a divinely appointed ruler, and the hierarchy that with the Pope on the top and everyone else below is a divinely appointed hierarchy. So yeah, like it's, there's just one, it's one church. He rules all the church. Right. All, all across the face of the earth. And there's no question about it. So like in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, when there were difficult theological questions, you would call councils together to make decisions. That became less and less common in the Roman Church. Yeah, I, I've always found it to be interesting that this is a reference to Peter mm. and his authority. When Jesus does say, 
I give this authority. Mm. And then Peter says, we are under shepherds awaiting the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. Good shepherd. Mm-hmm. Why not just go straight to Christ for your claim of secession? Yeah. There's biblical reason that mm-hmm. they could have done that in a way that they can't do with Peter. Mm-hmm. That they have to sort of like imagine into the scripture. Totally. Because and so I've, I've always, I've, I mean, that's another rabbit trail, but I've always wondered why this fascination with Peter and why not just, I think they would say, well, Christ gives it to Peter and then Peter yeah. on. It's the keys to the kingdom but passage. But why not skip Peter? Yeah, oh. I know. Um, and part of the reason too that things really blow up here um, is that we have to remember that three of the five major centers of Christianity had fallen to the Muslim caliphate. Yep. So Alexandria in Egypt, Jerusalem and Antioch, which were three of the five major centers of the church historically, mm-hmm. had all in recent decades and centuries fallen under Muslim rule. And essentially Christians who were there had no real power. There were still churches operating under Muslim control. Um, you essentially just paid a tax. Mm-hmm. And the Crusaders will do the same thing to the Muslims they conquer in the Middle East later. You just you have religious freedom if you pay a fee, um, but they don't they don't have these archbishops and these people to kind of like level the playing field or 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 have input in the conversation. You have East West Constantinople and Rome, mm-hmm. and they are not getting along. Um, so how it kind of goes down in 1053, uh, Michael Serilarius, who is the patriarch is what their term was for these kind of archbishops of, of major cities, of, of Constantinople. He wrote to the Western bishops, and he condemns them for using unleavened bread um, and having different fasting practices, etc. And he closes all the churches in Constantinople that have the Western tradition, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Pope Leo in Rome responds with a letter uh, claiming essentially he can do what he wants because he has Peter's authority. So right. if he says it's unleavened bread, it's unleavened bread, and they're going to fast when I want them to fast, right. and you better open my churches back up, buddy. Um, and the Pope sends three legates who are high-ranking officials. The legate was actually a, a Roman imperial uh, position, mm-hmm. um, military position, but the, the Roman Catholic Church kind of adopts these as, as representatives of the Pope who go to deal with this upstart in Byzantium. And uh, things go sour, and they ended up they end up walking into the Hagia Sophia, that right. big beautiful church, lay a bowl of excommunication on the altar of the church. You're out. You're done. All of you. So what does Michael do? He calls a council and then excommunicates the legates. I'm not excommunicated. You're excommunicated. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then and then the next Sunday when they stood up to preach, yeah, they. This is this is me imagining onto the history. I would hope that they would open up to the passage yeah. where the disciples looked to Jesus and said, there were those who were not of us that were preaching your gospel, and we told them to stop <laughs> because they are not of us. And Jesus said, those who are not against us are for us. Let's meditate. In other news, we have excommunicated half yeah. of the church. <laughs> Because yeast. Yeah, yeah. And and like we said before, right, <laughs> both groups believe there could be only one church. Yeah. There can be only one, Tim. So mm-hmm. Highlander reference. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, 
I do believe that there is only one church. Mm. And I do believe that we are severed in a number of ways. I, I believe that the church right now experiences the same thing that all of creation experiences. Mm. A level of the reflection of the glory of God, who is the creator, and brokenness because of sin in this world. Mm -hmm. And I remember years ago being challenged in a message that I saw. Uh, it was Secret Church, which is coming up, mm, by yes. the way. Yeah. And, and David Platt was talking about praying for big things. What's the most radical big thing that you can bring yourself to pray for? Mm. And I thought, singularity in the church mm. under the banner of truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, just means they all become Baptists, but <laughs> just kidding. Well, and but, but, that we would, but that we would get over some of these things, and, mm. and, and not over them in a way that says... Mm. They don't matter, and we don't think about them. Yeah, because that's what the United Church of Canada did. But getting past them mm -hmm. in a way of saying, we have found this to be the a true interpretation, yeah. right? Which cannot come until we are no longer looking through a glass dimly lit. Yeah, and I, I acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's my that's my big bold prayer. Yeah, no, I, I believe prayer. that there should be mm -hmm. just one church and and not all of these schisms and divisions. Mm -hmm. But it's the nature of it's yeah. the nature of imperfect interpretation yeah. by imperfect people. Well, and and sometimes people you know kind of lament over the variety of denominations that have sprung up in you know recent centuries or whatever, and. You know, some of those divisions are over trivial matters, and, sure. and, and you know, there's there's obviously that this human sinfulness, but let's not pretend that the church was truly united before the Great Schism. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen we've seen multiple controversies, people getting killed, right? Battles being fought over doctrinal differences already. Right. So the church has never truly been united. I think what changed in the last few hundred years was that you could. Um, do church your way and not be murdered for it. Right. And so, and so <laughs> I think that's what's changed. That's why we have so many denominations because there is a degree of religious freedom. There's yeah. not a top down, you know, mandate, I guess. And in some ways, it's also the nature of exponential growth. Sure. Yeah. Right. So you have, you have a church that splits mm. the great schism. Mm -hmm. And now you have two churches. Later on, you got some splits. Well, now you're not looking at three, you're looking at four. Mm. And then those split, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're at 16, right? Like, over the course of a millennia, because we are, you know, a thousand years removed from this era, mm -hmm. there is that continuation of reform and not reforming, yeah. staying with a tradition or reforming in a different way mm -hmm. that is going to cause these things that... I would think we will we should have only the mathematical expectation mm. of growth of denominations right. and variations of thinking. Now, if I was more optimistically post mill, I might think that that num number would start narrowing down again, <laughs> uh, and and maybe it will, but yeah. maybe it won't. I don't mm. know. Um, yeah. That's just it. That's just me saying it's not a modern problem. Mm. It's 
a modern expression of a historical problem. Yeah, but you and I it just needed time to get to this point. But you, you and I are going to a conference next week, where there's going to be different kinds of Baptists, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, non-denominational. I don't know other other kind of evangelical Reformed-ish groups that are going to be coming together, thousands and thousands. And worshiping together, sitting under teaching, teaching, learning from guys who have different doctrinal doctrinal positions than us, that wouldn't have happened fifty years ago. Together for the gospel, yeah, but that wouldn't have happened fifty years ago. Yeah, but it's that also the ha- last one. Well, <laughs> yeah, but there's also the go- yeah. There's whatever. Anyways, that's, that's just because the organizers aren't going <laughs> to yeah. do it anymore. Not because yeah. we've ceased yeah. to be together for the gospel. Yeah, um, yeah. So. Let's talk about more controversy because that's that's essentially what we got for you folks. On investitures? Investiture controversy. So a few years after the Great Schism, um, Pope dies. New Pope is elected. Pope Benedict X was elected under questionable influence. Um, bribes from the nobility, essentially. They, they wanted their guy in um, so that he would make decrees in the name of God that benefited their power structures or whatever. Yeah, so we we've, we've talked about the the f- first fruits of decline mm-hmm. in the papacy. At this point in history, this is where we take a hard left and it goes downhill fast. Oh, it gets even worse than this. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, this, it's bad. <laughs> this is where everything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and continues to go wrong. Um so I I I would say if you've been looking for that moment, it's been sort of creeping and easing that way mm-hmm. and it's just fallen off the cliff yeah so the some of the cardinals who opposed this decision elected anti-pope or other pope or whatever, right pope nicholas ii and he ends up essentially waging a war against benedict and wins and then because how do you decide who's <laughs> going to be the pastor of your church you <laughs> actually go to war you fight them <laughs> can you imagine Okay, so I'm the pastor, you're the associate. I'm sure. I'm I'm given to the fact that there are people that prefer you over me. Oh man. What if we literally developed a battlefield? Just fought. What would be that halfway point between your house and mine? Like Dundas Street? Oh man. We just met yeah. on either side of Dundas Street. <laughs> you know what? The train tracks are probably a pretty good It's gotta call be the too. tracks. Yeah, it's gotta be the tracks. So we just met. At the at the train station, that little yard, that field, yeah. there by the train station, and we yeah. just went to battle over which one of us was actually the pastor of this church. Physical warfare, trial by combat. The, the, let the divine decide through trial by combat. Yeah, I mean, you you do have an MMA background. I do, but I also know your weakness. It's <laughs> <laughs> true because of that battle. <sighs> Uh, and we'll see. Will it? <laughs> Let's do it. Why not? <laughs> oh boy. Okay. That's hilarious. So once once Nicholas is is elected, he issues a bunch of these papal bulls, these documents, uh, claiming that nobility could not take part in the process of selecting the pope anymore. It right. was a church thing. Separation of church and state. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the church technically was a state at this point also, but that's, you know, it's complicated. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so obviously the, the nobility opposed this. 
Uh, and it took some serious time for them to sort this question out. Um, in the 1070s, uh, Pope Gregory VII, because these popes come and go quick. They, they don't last very long. He publishes a document stating that um, the pope could depose the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, you might have won that empire for yourself through decades of conquest and think you're the most powerful person in the world, but you're not. I am, and I can depose you whenever I want. Right, and this is this is with Henry, mm-hmm. who is who's not... He's not anti-Christian. No, no. And so I, I like the way this particular textbook says it. It says, put this way, the two leaders of Christendom, right? Christendom, this is the... This is the Christian state, where Christianity is the social expectation. Yeah, yeah. Christendom begins with Constantine, arguably. It's born. Sure. It's not running full strength, but it's born. Sure, yeah. And Christendom dies last week. <laughs> I, would say, I would say within our lifetime. I would say probably 20 years ago mm. was the end of Christendom. Hmm. Um, so put this way, two leaders of Christendom contended for two different views on kingship. This is Henry and Gregory. Henry, King, Gregory, the Mm. Pope. Mm -hmm. For Gregory, it was a political office subject to the Pope. For Henry, it was a theocratic office filled by one who was king by the grace of God and as a liturgically anointed as liturgically anointed served as a mediator between the people and the clergy mm-hmm. so the king says no god has made me king mm-hmm. there's scriptural evidence for that oh yeah i causes say... kingdoms to rise and fall yeah and your job mr pope is just to acknowledge that god has appointed me to be king mm-hmm. and the pope says no you are king appointed by God, mm-hmm. and I'm the messenger of God mm-hmm. here to let you know that you get to be king, and I'll let you know when you don't get to be king. Right. <laughs> and so that's the standoff, both of them claiming divine authority. Mm-hmm. And this is the, oh, this is where it gets really messy because everyone is going to claim the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Mm-hmm as their reasoning for why they're right and the other one's wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Henry essentially responds... I mean, he just is not down with with what the Pope's saying. (laughs) And so he just was... He's like, well, I don't think you're the real Pope, so what do you think about that? Right. (laughs) Which is just kind of like, that's the go-to move. It's like, I'm just going to not acknowledge you as Pope. You're not my mom. He writes a letter to him and he refers to him by his, like, by the Pope's actual name, right, which is Hildebrand. Instead of his papal name. Which is like a, a huge slap in the face. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And I mean, so they have this this contentious thing that that goes back and forth, this this division. And it's and it's not really fully resolved. Like it doesn't really it doesn't really end right away. But ultimately what we're gonna see is just a general increase in papal authority. You know, and some some compromises are made. Like up in England, bishops will swear fealty to the king in regards to the lands that they hold, mm-hmm. but they're not technically 
the king can't make his own bishops, right? The king can't. It, it is a separation of church and state, but not in a, not in a good way. I, I don't know because people are put in a weird spot. <laughs> because at this point, everyone believes that you are only in the body of Christ by recognition of the church. Mm -hmm. And so you have people that are like, am I going to oppose the king mm -hmm. who can take everything that I have physically, even my life? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to oppose the church mm -hmm. who can do the same on a spiritual level? Mm -hmm. And maybe on a physical one too, if they want. Sure. <laughs> and you are stuck between a rock and yeah. a hard place. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like the rockiest rock and the hardest of places is yeah. what people have been led to in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll see throughout the Middle Ages like a common play for popes when they don't like what a monarch is doing is to just excommunicate them, sometimes their whole kingdom, because they believe they have the authority to do it. And then oftentimes in return, those monarchs will just say, well, I don't like you as pope, so I'm just going to find a new pope. And and it, sometimes you have three popes running around at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's a, it's just a mess. It's just yeah, a mess. here... I've got some excerpts cool. from yeah. these letters that go back and forth. Awesome. Uh, Henry, king, this, this is Henry writing to Gregory. Mm -hmm. Henry, king, not by usurpation, but by the holy ordinance of God. A letter to Hildebrand. That's how it begins. <laughs> Let me remind you who I am. You almost don't even need to keep reading it to know his position you on this. You get the gist of it, yeah. To Hildebrand, not now a pope, but a false monk. <laughs> Come down then from the usurped apostolic seat. Let another ascend who will preach the sound doctrine of the blessed apostle without the cloak of violence. I, Henry, king by the grace of God, and all my bishops say, Come down, come down. And be forever damned. Oh, man. <laughs> to which Gregory writes, For the honor and defense of thy church. He's not even addressing the king. Mm. He's writing a letter to be delivered to the king, which is addressing God. Okay. For the honor and defense of thy church, by thy power and authority, I deprive Henry the king who has risen against thy church with unparalleled pride of the governance of all Germany and Italy, and I absolve all Christians from the bond of the oath which they have or shall make. I prohibit anyone from serving him as king. So he writes and says, all of your loyalties to the king I hereby have absolved on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And I've made it a sin to right. even obey him in any, in any way, shape, or form. Right. Both of them have said, for the purity of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. you need to just go away and let me be in charge. Oh, yikes. Yeah. This is, this is a great schism. <laughs> even though it is not a, the schism that is the great schism... Oh, yeah. It is a huge divide. The West is in peril. The West is in, in rough shape, yeah. It's in, it's in, it's in, in yeah, really rough shape. Um, there is 
a little bit of shining light. We'll, we'll talk about one person. We're, we're getting close to our hour here, but we'll, we'll, there is one character that I think uh, is worth mentioning. Yeah, I think he. I think God injects him into this time period just to keep everything from going into chaos. <laughs> it, it's kind of like when you get that one degree day in the middle of winter mm. when everything has been in the negatives for a high and there's the one degree day that just sort of saves <laughs> your hope for the future. Right. I think that's what we have here. <laughs> yeah, so Anselm uh, was born uh, in northern Italy, 1033, to a noble family. He wanted to join the clergy at 15, but his dad wouldn't let him. Which is interesting. Sure. I mean, I mean, I had some people, I had some family warn me off about pursuing becoming a pastor. Yeah. But I think it was, I think it was, you know, well-meaning. But in any, in any case, um, his parents eventually die, though, as people did, generally fairly early back mm-hmm. in those days. So he decides to become a monk. He attaches himself to Lanfranc, who was another well-known priest, um, who was up and coming. He ends up becoming Archbishop of Canterbury after the Norman invasion. And eventually, Lanfranc dies, and Anselm himself becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most powerful bishop in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, he is exiled on two different occasions. As these, as these fights are happening about who has the most authority, the king or the church, right. um, you know, he kind of is is more on the church side. So on two different occasions, he's exiled and brought back, exiled and brought back. Um, because these aren't things that you can you can't not have a position. No, you need you need a take. Yeah, right. And yeah, and 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 while we might be, you know, we might scoff at you know the popes flexing their muscles like that. There were some pretty wicked kings as well. Sure, like you're kind yep. of your 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 choices aren't great in this time period in history, right? right. I, I, in at least on a on a fairly regular basis, you know, you're you're dealing with two bad options, right? Uh, and it, that's the good point. You're dealing with two bad options. Mm-hmm. You have to have a take. Yeah. Right. You're being forced to have a take, and you're going to end up being excommunicated or exiled, depending on your take. Yeah. Right. You're you, there is no. I'm going to lay here neutral and ever be everybody's friend. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not an option. Yeah. Yeah, um, but Anselm writes extensively, and he's considered uh, the greatest Christian mind between Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, which is a gap. That's a yeah. That's like a what, like an eight hundred year gap? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a prominent. <laughs> that's that's almost. That's over a third, not quite a half, of the history of the church. Yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. Um, yeah. So he he was a prominent philosopher, theologian. Um, he kind of like Augustine and, and later Aquinas, so he's similar to, to, to them both, sought to explain the faith in a rational way. It's almost kind of being like, like an apologist, trying to mm-hmm. explain logically what we believe and unpack it that way, um, which was more of a Western church thing. The Eastern church isn't really down with that, but, um, but, but he was well-renowned, um, you know, what he would say, though, is that our faith precedes reason. Faith is still more important than our reason. Mm-hmm. But our reason can expand and deepen our faith. Absolutely. Right? And, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that. I, think, I, I, like, how, I like how he puts that. Um, that, you know, we don't reason our way into faith. Um, but 
our reason as we explore what is true and as we consider these deep questions, as we search for truth, we come to know the one who is the source of all truth, um, and our faith is is there deepened. God gave us minds for a reason. Yeah, it, one of my favorite takeaways from seminary apologetics course, I'd love to credit the author, but I think his name is French, and so I never know how to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, he says there are two levels of apologetics, and we need to keep them in the right order. Mm. Uh, first level apologetics are for the strengthening and deepening of my own faith. Yeah. And the second order of apologetics are for convincing those who need to be convinced. Mm-hmm. And we often see it backward. Yeah. We see apologetics as primarily a winning of an argument, a having of a, a better position, and he says, no, this is, this is a personal discipline and discipling of myself. Mm. It's a part of my own growth in Christ and um, sanctification. And, mm. and secondarily, for convincing others. And I think it's pretty much in line with what Anselm is getting at. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And he does, he, he kind of defines what's commonly called the ontological argument for the existence of God. Mm, that's uh, a good word. Ontological? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. It's uh, one of those words that makes you feel smarter than you are. It <laughs> Although if you learn what it means, you actually are smarter than you were. So hopefully we so can achieve that. So there's something some to it. Yeah. So essentially, the idea, the ontological argument is essentially this. Okay. God is a being that is... is Sorry, let me let me rephrase this. That was, yeah, I'm not sounding very smart. Okay, God is a being that is greater than anything that we can conceive, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing that we can imagine that is greater than God, right? Okay, and and so this type of being, we have a, a concept of this in our mind, right? We have a concept of what like absolute power and goodness is, even if we can't fully wrap our minds around it. We we can we can sense what that what that is. Um, so if we can conceive of this supreme ultimate being in our minds, it must also exist in reality. Right. So ontology is the study of being, Mm -hmm. right? Origins, where does it, where do things come from? How do they exist? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. The, the concept of the be verb. Am is our mm-hmm. was were mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. be verbs. Ontology is is the study of that existence, the very core nature of existence. Mm-hmm. And the ontological argument for God is his I amness, mm-hmm. right? What does it mean for him to exist and for us to come into existence? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And to, so to, because we can because we have a concept of what God is like, like we wouldn't have we wouldn't be able to even think about a being like him with the attributes that he has unless he truly existed is is the idea yeah kind of an i think therefore he is kind of yeah which again the ontological argument on its own might not be the kind of you know sign sealed delivered kind of argument yeah. for the existence of god but typically it's used kind of in conjunction with other arguments that yeah, I and I think that's true, but I think that's also its strength. The mm. the point is not that there would ever be any one 
argument that says this is the definitive be all end all argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but to say every argument points to God, yeah. right? That's what truth in the exploration of this creation that was given for his glory, mm -hmm. it all points back to him, even the concept of thought and existence and mm -hmm. ontology. Yeah, like because we have a concept of goodness, right? What uh, What is good and what is not good? Yeah. There must be an absolute standard of goodness that we're measuring that from. There sure. must be something outside of just our own subjective minds to measure that against or greatness or whatever. And so that's where we get the idea of who God is, right? God. It's not that God... God doesn't conform to morality, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't even invent morality. Right. He embodies it. Right. He embodies greatness and goodness and love and justice and all of these things. And human morality mm -hmm. points is a shadow of and points us toward mm -hmm. that concept of a greater divine mm -hmm. be benchmark. Yeah. That is God. And and Anselm introduces ontology in that way to say that our existence, the existence of anything, why is there something rather than nothing, which I think is the ultimate question to give to an atheist. Mm. Why is there something instead of nothing? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, that, is, that is the key question that leads into the ontological argument. Mm -hmm. That anything exists means there must be a greater existence. Mm. Right? If you're really keen on this kind of thing, if you're hearing this and you're like, that's the sort of thing I want to dig into. Mm. William Lane Craig is a mind-blowing apologist who really digs deep on the ontological argument mm. in a really profound way. Mm. If, if you're smarter than me, you won't have to. <laughs> but if you're, if you're someone who's sort of like on par with me, you're going to need to listen maybe a couple of times mm. because he can be pretty, pretty weedy. Uh, but man, he's good. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Um, one other thing. Yeah. We'll br briefly mention, um, that, that Anselm kind of captures is the satisfaction theory of atonement. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so here's the thing up until this point or, or no, I shouldn't say up until this point, but during this era, the common understanding of the atonement. Jesus' death on the cross was ransom theory. Mm -hmm. That was what was being put around. So, so Jesus' death is essentially ransom money paid to the devil who had us by the throat. We were his hostages, right? And God has to pay the devil to set us free, right? That's theologically wrong. Like straight up, it's wrong and very common today. Still common, yes. Yeah. Um, but but that's just like it. It makes. Satan a benefactor of the cross. Yes. Yeah. Like he yeah, like he he got something out of that. Right. Um yeah, so that's not the case. So L hold on. Sorry. Is that what Lewis is putting forth in, in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe? Maybe. I think so. Yeah. But Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe is a children's story, not a theological it, treatise. I know it, it is an allegory. I know it is, but but I, I don't think we have to. I don't. I would say that it doesn't mean that we dismiss Lewis. Yeah. I think that we would not. I would not teach my kids atonement theory. A atonement theory, if you're wondering, is just from the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Yeah. A atonement sure. theory is 
why did Christ go to the cross and exactly what happened yeah, yeah. in that position? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't use the line, the witch in the wardrobe as a standalone. This is what took place. I, I certainly hope not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because no. I do believe it has, if it's not ransom theory, it, it reeks of it. Yeah. There. Yeah. 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 yeah no, totally. Um, no. So, so the satisfaction theory is cl- closer. Mm hmm. Much closer to where we would probably where we would stand, um, and I don't necessarily even think that satisfaction theory is inherently wrong. It's just not the whole story. Generally, what happens in divergent atonement theories is not that we need one versus another, but we need elements of them all. Yeah. So, so what satisfaction theory is is that Christ's death provides satisfaction for the justice of God. Right. The justice of God has been violated. First in the garden, and then countless times before. Right, there is a blood debt. There, that, 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 that needs to be satisfied. Sin is an injustice that might be righted, and so Christ's death achieves that. It's it's paying back for the wrong humans have committed against the Almighty. Right. So the the principal difference between the two is who is being paid. Right. Is it God the Father? whose justice needs to be paid mm-hmm. with the blood of sinners, mm-hmm. which Christ substitutes at the cross, or is it the white witch? Right, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. If you don't know Narnia, Satan. Yeah. And so who is the the one benefiting from the substitution of Jesus on the cross? Mm-hmm. Is it God, whose debt is being paid, or is it Satan? Right who's being paid off. Right. And that's the principal difference. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's no question it's not Satan. All right, so at this point, my computer just absolutely lost its mind and dropped the back end of the podcast. But that's okay. There wasn't much left to say, and this is how it wraps up. In the last moment, I'm, I made a statement that atonement theories work together and it's not it's not all about Christus Victor versus penal substitutionary atonement uh, but there's a blend of these things and I just want to be clear that we when we say there's a blend we're not saying that ransom theory deserves to be a part of that conversation that is that is not the statement it is not one of those that comes together as a piece to the greater puzzle of what happened in atonement it is entirely separate and should be left apart from our atonement theories. Anyway, that's that. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by the guy who caught the fact that the computer dropped, Alex Walker. See you next time.